This is Reimagining Healthcare, a podcast about innovation in the healthcare industry. It's a show for healthcare business owners, for healthcare professionals, for industry investors, and health tech entrepreneurs. On the show, I talk to health tech and healthcare innovators to uncover how they're reimagining and building a world of seamless digital healthcare experiences and how that fits into people's lives. I'm your host, Yanni Sopanos. Today, I'm speaking with Gaylene Adams-Wood, Managing Director and Business Impact Partner with Team Fusion International. They're a business leadership coaching group from New Zealand, helping business owners redefine meaning in business, relationships, and life. Gaylene shares her story, having drawn from her personal experience as an employee working within Teams, to develop a better way to create and build inspired, empowered, engaged, and high-performing team culture. We delve into aspects of a business owner's life and how that will likely impact culture within your teams. In other words, how are our issues, personally, likely to impact our business culture? Building out to explore what highly productive means in the workplace, and you might be surprised to hear what this is and how to achieve it. Galen has a concept of team flow and talks to the elements within your business life that can come together to enter this state and drive the business forward. I think there's some key insights for startups in healthcare and health tech to take from this discussion that not only help support business owners to fulfill their own life objectives within and outside of their business, but also the team members you work with and the clients you come into contact with. Let's jump in. Hey there, Gaylene. How are you today? Awesome. Thank you, Yanni. How are you? Lovely to have you on board today to have a bit of a discussion around some of the intricacies of human beings within the context of business and really draw on some of your experience in leadership in that particular area and coaching to support businesses. You're in NZ at the moment across the pond, so uh, it's nice to be able to connect with you online. Before we, we fully unpack Team Fusion and where you're at today, I always like to find out about the journey and puts a person into the position that they're currently in and why they want to do it. So perhaps a few key points around your journey to date that brings you to the position you're in today. So I started my career very early. I didn't finish high school, but I had an amazing opportunity to work in an organization that was very high performance. And I was actually a florist, which you might not think is a high performance environment, but it is for the reason that there are a lot of deadlines. There's a lot of people interaction and you're dealing with the best of life as well as the worst of people's lives it's a sales environment and it just when you've got the right team it just flows like clockwork so from there I moved into an international humanitarian organization and alongside both of those organizations I was involved in I was also involved in scouting and so from a very young age leadership was an important part of my experience in the workplace because of my scouting background. And so what happened was as a 16-year-old in scouting, I was one of the leaders within the national organisation because of the location of where I lived, the head office was in that area. And so I was seconded into policy organisation and rules meetings as the only young person voice. So I would go into meetings with just completely grey-haired people, and as a 16-year-old saying, well, I think this is what scouting should happen. So that was a great opportunity to be exposed to governance and policy and organisation and, and that structure around growing 
significant organizations. And then the humanitarian organization I worked with was Red Cross. And so within all of these organizations, we had really strong purpose. We had a commitment to good leadership and we had incredible teamwork, incredible culture because we knew why we were there and why we needed to be there. So all of that gave me a very, very solid foundation around high-performance team environments. And then when I left Red Cross, I went out into the big wide world and discovered that not all organisations have great purpose, strategy, leadership, communication, teamwork, etc. And to be honest, because I spent the first seven years of my career in high-performance environments, I was really shocked that these things that I've taken for granted as every day weren't actually happening in the rest of the real world. So it literally took me about 20 years of searching and going to all kinds of organisations. I started by thinking, "Mm, maybe multinationals know what they're doing. And so I'd go and work in a multinational and be disappointed. Or I'd work in national organisations. Then I tried small business. I'm thinking, well, they're more nimble. So maybe they have more of what I'm looking for and where I felt that I belonged. But none of them really had what I was looking for. And to be honest, I looked in lots and lots of different industries as well. All kinds of industries, from forestry industry to government agencies. I worked in education. I worked in telcos. Just there was a whole raft of organisations I worked with. Some of them were product-based organisations. Some of them were service-based organisations. And in the end, I went, you know what? I think I need to stop looking out there and look in within and take what I know and go and help small and medium businesses to do the things that I had grown up with in the first seven years of my career. So that's why I do what I do. Yeah, there's a number of keywords I was picking up on as you were talking, you know, use words like meaning, purpose, belief. You know, there's a lot of very motivational factors that come into the human experience that you're drawing a parallel with. And I think there are a lot of people in both the healthcare and the health tech sector that would really resonate with that. I personally do as well. There's, you know, there have been moments, and I won't pack too much of it today, but there have been moments in my life where those observations of the world have now become defining moments in why I do what I do today. And you kind of then build on top of that. And it sounds as though you were finding initially a lot of self-awareness and observation of what you felt was a better way for people to connect with their employers and then not enough out there to actually, you know, what is the right way to build a team of people? And I think that's kind of what your story reflects, isn't it? You sort of, you experience what it's like to feel like you're employed in an organisation with all the right characteristics, and then you observed what it's like not to have that in place. And so you've taken it upon yourself to actually build a support system for people to actually be able to define their own level of a great workplace and a team environment and what have you. Is that sort of a fair summary? Absolutely. The culture of great teamwork starts with great strategy. You've got to understand why you're there, how you're going to get from where you are to where you want to be before you can even start leading your team down that track. And so you've got to start at the beginning. And I think I have conversations with people all the time who say to me, oh, so-and-so is not Performing, and I say, well, why are they not performing? What role did you hire them for? Are they in the same role that you hired them for? Have you promoted them outside of their area of expertise or their skill set? 
Do they know what's actually required every day? Have you had a conversation with them? Do they have KPIs? Do they understand what happens if they don't deliver at the right levels? And these are conversations that most people just don't have with their team. They think they're having the right conversations, but they're not necessarily. I can personally relate to the challenges. I found that a team and a workplace is kind of a reflection of leadership. It's almost like a mirror reflecting back, or at least that's the way I observed it initially being not in a leadership position in the earliest stages of my career. And I just think about when I exited the corporate sector, if I reflect back on it now, the number one reason I left you know, was pretty lucrative career path was that the person that I worked for just was not an inspiration and didn't know how to manage me uh, particularly well and didn't have a lot of empathy and social skills and a whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> I better not name names, but I don't think I left that job. I think I left that boss. And when I started in my own business, I started seeing the teams that I was building around me myself. I could actually see the way I spoke was starting to be reflected back at me. And, and that was a real eye-opener for me to then think about when things weren't going well. Was it because of my leadership? Was it because of the directions I'd given or the way that I actually approached things? Does that kind of story sound typical and usual in terms of the people that you work with? Absolutely. So I heard a stat on the radio that I must admit it was pre-COVID and it was a New Zealand stat, but I think New Zealand and Australia are quite similar. And it was 74% of people leave their job for a new job because they don't like working for their boss. And 74% is a massive statistic. So I think you're absolutely right. You do need to look at yourself and constantly be checking yourself as a leader. If you've got issues, you need to be first saying, where am I contributing to this? What is it that I'm doing and can I change? Everything is a dance. All relationships are a dance. And if you are the lead in the dance, then you can change the dance. So this is what happens all the time when I go into organizations. They usually have at least one person. Everybody, everybody can name the weakest link. So if everybody can name who the weakest link is, then that means everybody knows who that is. And as the leader, they're looking to you to solve that problem for them because it's their problem as much as it is your problem. And so this whole conversation around how do you affect change as a leader? Well, you have got to start with you. And your whatever you, the way that you communicate needs to be inspiring, it needs to be empowering, and it needs to make sure that people are feeling engaged in what it is that you're asking them to do. Because if they're not engaged, then they're not going to want to do it anyway. So let's let's talk about that. Firstly, what's your definition of high performance? So I have maybe an unorthodox definition, and that is when a team is in flow. By that I mean everybody knows what's required of them within a certain context, getting a desired result. So in the healthcare industry or in the pharmaceutical industry, for example, you can't afford to get it wrong even once. And there's enormous pressure to make sure that you hit those standards. So, for example, in another industry, if you had, say, a 98% success rate, that would be pretty amazing. But if you get it wrong with 100 out of 100 patients, then that means maybe 2% of the people are going to die because of what it is that you have 
advise them to do. So it depends on your industry as to well, what is high performance and what does it look like, not only in the industry but in the role. So I think that it's hard to say one size fits all, but the majority of the time for the majority of industries, 80% is good enough, but it does depend on your industry. So if you only helped 80% of your clients, that might not be enough for you. So you've got to make sure that if you're putting a definition on something, that it's got to be specific A to your role and B to the industry that you're in. So that kind of 80-20 rule of thumb really has kind of a customer focus on it. In other words, the organisation is here to add value or help or support clients. And so it would follow then that the team is aligned with that idea and connected with that idea and kind of understand their role in everything, use the term flow. So that's not necessarily an individual that's being the alternative or the synonym for high performance is working their absolute butt off and many hours over time. It's not that kind of thing. It's what's flow? Maybe tease that out a little bit more. Yeah, sure. So flow is when you're doing what comes naturally to you with ease and with grace. That's how I would determine it. And we have profiling tools which help us understand what does flow look like for each individual person. So for example, if you had somebody who was a really good with numbers and detail and you put them out in front of the client all the time, they will probably feel really drained. So whereas if you had somebody who was a really extroverted personality and you had them in the background doing all the laborious, very meticulous, detailed work, they would also feel drained. So what we do with a team to get them what we call in flow is to make sure that everybody on the team is doing work that's aligned to what comes naturally to them. So you've got what literally comes naturally and then there is also experience that you've built up because you've practiced something enough times. And so, you know, there's the saying that do something for 10,000 hours and you'll start to become good at it. But it doesn't mean that it's natural to you. It's, that could be a learned skill or a learned behavior. So we want to go back to well, what comes naturally to you. And some people have a natural flair for creativity Other people have a natural flair for customer service. And if you have those two people in the wrong role, so imagine the creative person was in the customer service role, expecting to deliver certain outcomes that are consistent every single time, then they would not be able, the creative person would not be able to do that consistently over a long period of time and keep following exactly the same system because it doesn't give them any opportunity for creativity. So in just the same, if you gave someone who does have good customer service skills, they're naturally good, they have a natural ability to listen to the temperature of the team, and if you put them into, well, we just want you doing picture strategy, which involves lots and lots of creativity, then people that those people would really struggle with that. Let's say you've got somebody who is a finance person and you're trying to get them to do the creativity of marketing they're going to struggle and what will happen is their behavior will be out of alignment with what it is that you actually want them to do. So one company I went into, they had somebody who was a really good finance person, but he was the boss's son and so she wanted him to learn the business from the ground up. So she put him in at the receptionist role and when I walked in the door that first day when I met him, Honestly, it was like 
I had interrupted the most important thing of his entire life. And the, the reception I got from him was not warm and friendly and welcoming. I literally felt like I was an imposter coming into his workspace and how dare I. Now, that same man, when we switched the teams around, he went into a finance role and within six weeks had found $100,000 worth of unpaid invoices. So this was revenue to the company that had not been collected. So he used his detailed skills to go and look through all of the financial accounts, work out who owed the company money, and then he put in place the collection process. So within a couple of months, they were $100,000 richer. And it was money they'd already earned, but no one had followed up because the system wasn't in place and the right person wasn't in the business doing that function. So you, it's important to get the right people in the right role doing the right thing. And when that happens, the whole team gets in flow. And even one person who's not in flow can upset the entire flow of a team. Gosh, there's so much to unpack in, in that, but that's a great example of getting uh, the right person for the right job, so to speak. And I think that kind of helps me connect with what you said earlier around inspiring, empowering and engaging. But, you know, how easy or hard is it to get the selection of a person right in business? Is there sort of self-selection that happens where people go for roles because they've already identified that they are naturally attuned to that? And if so, is that sort of a 10 out of 10 scorecard or do people self-select wrongly and figure out the hard way for themselves and potentially the people who are employing them figure out the hard way what happens when you get it wrong when you employ the wrong person for a type of role how does that work can you vet it can you screen it can you define it or is it really sort of this cosmic harmonious optimization that happens by people (laughs) self-selecting tell me tell me your thoughts or your experience yeah, so um, it's it's a mixture of all of the above, Yanni. So what happens is when you invite somebody into your home, you're very careful about who you let in. So when they ring the doorbell, you're going to check them out before they come in. But so often employers are desperate to hire somebody because they've got a gap, and so they don't necessarily do the right due diligence to assess the role and the requirement, the natural skill set required of the role. The other thing that happens is, and I'll use a sales example, it might not be quite applicable, but a lot of people will say, well, we need this high-performing salesperson and they have to be brilliant at admin. And normally you're hiring somebody who's great at sales or great at admin and you wouldn't expect to package the two things in together. So sometimes a role is set up incorrectly and so you're almost asking for an oxymoron to be the to fill that role um, if you need somebody who's brilliant at sales hire them and if you need somebody who's great at admin then hire them don't try and package the two into the same job description because you're going to set yourself and that person up to fail the other thing is if we don't have a really clear position description and a very clear selection process then it's very hard for us to know have we actually got the right person? And it's very easy to look at someone's CV and look at their experience, but not necessarily see behind the scenes what comes naturally to them. And that comes back to that, you know, if they've done something for 10,000 hours, it can look like 
they are um, the right fit. So we have a profiling tool that we use. We've got two tools. The first one is called an identifier. So you, you literally put in the details of a role and then it will tell you what is the right profile for that person. And then we use the language of that person's or that profile in the advertisement so that you're speaking to that person. And the, the people who are a natural fit will read it and go, ah, this is perfect for me. This is, this is the job for me. So we're using multi-layers to be able to make sure we're filtering out the wrong people and only letting the right people in. And this is the process that we use to support people who are recruiting in-house, but it can also be used if you're using an external agency, then we can run that the position description through the identifying tool and we can say this is the profile type this is the language you need to, to ask your recruiter to use. And this is the selection criteria from a personality perspective that we need for this role. So it's all happens behind the scenes. And then it's just filtering out the wrong ones uh, and just letting the right ones through. That's a really powerful idea. And I think if it's kind of not obvious, it kind of explains your brand name as well, Team Fusion which is about actually making sure that the team is working harmoniously together because you are actually selecting people who are naturally attuned to the role that they're being placed in. And what I like about that model that you have is that it kind of reminds me a lot of what we do in software. When we design software, we have a a persona or a caricature of who we're actually designing for. And we really want to understand them and speak to them and contextualize our engagement with them within the interface and also from a marketing standpoint so that the person is actually seeing themselves in the software and in the experience of the marketing and the journey that's been created for them to actually engage with the software and come into the trial experience and ultimately select a a plan that is suitable for them. So that whole empathy is a really core component of customer experience design and human-centered design for health tech. And what I'm hearing from you is that you've actually created your own set of tools that could be provided to your clients to be able to understand what the persona looks like for a given role and then to be able to communicate and market that role so that you are filtering out the people who kind of not resonate with that marketing of the job description because it's actually not designed for them. It's designed for somebody who reads the ad and goes, oh, that's me, and then sort of takes the step forward to engage with the recruitment process and work through. Is that sort of a fair characterization? Absolutely, absolutely. And then part of that process, once we've got the ads and we've got the people coming through, is you can either profile everybody who comes through or you can just profile your top two or three, which is what normally happens. But also we can take that profile and we can say, well, how will this person with this unique personality fit into the team? We can run a team report so you can see in advance what that looks like. What we can also do is say, okay, well, given this person, these are the things that you're going to need to look out for. This is how you're going to manage them best. This is what they need in order to thrive in your environment. So you're getting a heads up in advance of the things that could become management issues down the track, but you're knowing that right at the beginning of the recruitment process before they've signed on the line. So it's a for both parties, it's an eyes wide open 
and for the candidates that we go through this process with, the thing that they say, the number one thing they say is, this is such a thorough process. I'm holding the company that I'm looking to work with in much higher regard because I can see that they really care about getting the right person. So it actually has a good reflection on your brand and sets you apart from, you know, if they're looking at two or three different roles, which often is happening when there's a, a shortage in an industry, if they're looking at the experience that they're having with you compared to the experience they're having with potential other employers, your experience by using this process will be streets ahead of the experience that they're getting elsewhere. Yeah, and people know that through your career, just as I was reflecting on earlier, I know what a bad experience was with a boss versus what a good experience was. And, you know, that's kind of led me, I think, to be a better leader within my organizations as well, because we're all growing. I mean, none of us made it perfect for any given roles. There's that kind of evolution. But I really want to reinforce what connected me with your story, Gaylene, and that is that whole idea of thinking in, in a sense, and I know you don't use this language, so this is my way of saying it in my words, but you've designed a human-centered or customer experience model where the customer is an employee or a future team member. And I kind of see the connection there with sort of saying that the idea of creating a good service or a good product or a good experience shouldn't necessarily be constrained to what you normally think is a customer, but it's sort of like every stakeholder of your business. How do you engage with suppliers? How do you engage with your advisors? How do you engage with, in this case, employees? When you market to them properly and you engage with them properly, it does more, I think, than reinforce your brand and build your brand story, but it takes us to that sort of holy grail of becoming an employer of choice. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your views on employer of choice? Absolutely. There are a lot of people who are working really, really hard, doing the best that they possibly can um, for their business. And we've all worked somewhere else um, in our careers. And I, I agree with you, Yanni. We are an amalgamation of all of the experiences, good and bad. And it's very easy when you're sitting in the employee's shoes, looking at the manager and seeing all the things that they've done wrong. But at the same time, when you switch roles and step into that management role, there are so many extra pressures that employees never see. You're in charge of paying the bills. You're in charge of making sure that there's patients coming through the door. So there is a whole nother layer of things that they don't get to see, but in fact does impact them in the way that you lead them. So to become an employer of choice, it literally is about looking at what do you stand for what, what is the real purpose beyond the services that you're delivering? You know, why are you really here? What do you want to be known for? How do you want to be represented and shown up? Uh, how do you want to show up in the world? Is there a reason behind the reason that you're making money? And a, a lot of people just go into business thinking that they're going to make an income provide for their family but there's got to be more than that that's not enough these days and especially millennials and gen z's which are the 20 somethings they want to know that why they're there has meaning and purpose and significance for them they want to know that they are making a difference uh, and this is a huge driver it's a, a bigger driver than the money so we've got to be thinking about through the eyes of our employee audience what is it that they really want and need 
And once you can start doing that, and obviously the best way to do that is to ask them. For some people, that's a really foreign concept, is to ask their employees to contribute to what the business is going to look like. But once you start asking what's important to them, they and they trust you that you will really hear them and, and make some changes if that's what needs to happen. Once they trust you, they'll just keep coming forward with the answers and they'll help you co-create what it is that you want to create. So I think this becoming an employer of choice is not just about what you want to do in your business. It's about involving everybody so that together as one team you're moving forward and you're making a difference behind whatever it is, that the reason that you're there. So for, in my business, I want to make a difference by impacting the lives of a million people. And the way that I do that is not just about the people who serve as my clients, but I have a program that runs in the background that every time somebody purchases some service, some good happens in another part of the world. And so, you know, I support projects in, in New Zealand, but also in India and in Kenya, because those are the those are what really resonates for me. And we sponsor elephants as well. So that to me, that's really why I get up. How many how many other people can I help besides my clients? You've got to figure out what's the why behind the why for you. Yeah, 100%. It makes a lot of sense. There was an interesting experience we had very recently in the Core Plus business where we were recruiting for a role. It was a senior developer. And one of the candidates that we felt would be a good fit for the role, just before the office stage and through discussions, we realized that we weren't 100% aligned with that exact question, sort of like, why are we doing this? Why is this person wanting to develop? And as compared to why the company exists and, but it was a mutual realization. And the reason I'm sharing this is what came out of it is that we decided mutually not to proceed with getting involved with each other. But guess what? He actually then went off and recommended one of his peers in the industry to apply for the role. Because he, in every other respect, he was really impressed with the whole journey that he went through. And but for the fact that we had, his career path was not about reimagining digital health interoperability in Australia and building better relationships between healthcare providers. He was more motivated around the technology itself. So that mutual realization was fine. But if it wasn't for that, he, he would have joined the team and we would have extended an offer. But he loved the process and the whole experience that he actually recommended one of his colleagues in the industry. And we just extended an offer to that colleague uh, the other day because it turned out he was the right fit. So it's kind of uh, interesting how that kind of plays itself out. But it was kind of two points. I guess I'm validating what you're saying, that when you create good experiences for people, don't underestimate the power of the referral Mm -hmm. and the knock-on effect in the community. And that goes towards the brand experience and that sort of employer of choice. Have you sort of heard within your client community similar stories like that? Oh, definitely, definitely. And I think, you know, what I've heard you say is that there wasn't an alignment perhaps of values or purpose. Purpose. Yeah. But, you know, purpose also aligns with your values. And I think a lot of people don't understand how important having a good, clear set of values are. And we're not talking about just three or five words on a page. You know, they've got to be living. And people need to be able to explain what does that value mean. So for me, uh, in my own business, one of our values is that every interaction inspires, empowers, and engages. So when I'm in a coaching client uh, 
appointment, for example, the first thing I do as soon as they come in the door, and we do a lot on Zoom, but the first question I'm asking them is, what's your arrival number? I want to know where are you at right now because I need to be delivering value to you during that coaching session. And at the end of the coaching session, I'm asking, what's your biggest learning and what what is your leaving number? And I've done a good job when the arrival number is lower than the leaving number and that they've got a really, really clear uh, learning objective that they've achieved from that session. So the values are so important. You've got to make them a living thing. They're not just things that sit on the wall, just like your vision statement. It's not something that sits on the wall that you look at every now and then. This has to be behaviour that you see on a day-to-day basis. And as, as an employer of choice, there's loads of ways that you can ensure that those values are being lived and breathed every single day. And if you can, in your recruitment process, if you can tease out why somebody resonates with a particular value that you have, then you'll know whether they're going to be on brand for you or not. And it makes a massive difference if you've got a set of values that will enable people to see how they're being true to your brand on a day-to-day basis. And it's always there, isn't it? It's just a question of whether we're conscious of it and we're articulating it. Culture exists. It's not like we have to invent it or make it. Uh, it already exists. We, we may not be happy with it. We may need to uh, change it or aspire to a future state or something that we perceive as better. But it's always there. And I think that's part of the value of working with you, Gaylene. It's kind of being able to sort of uh, take a snapshot in time. Where are we at right now? Where are the pain points in the way that our team operates? How can we actually design the product of the roles and the experience for people to naturally feel attuned and connected with it and come into the mix. Is there a too small or too large kind of scenario? I'm kind of thinking about one thing I, I talk to a lot of um, colleagues in the in the health tech X community, particularly founders and co-founders. I see this real pattern of people select, you know, co-founders and teammates based on personal relationships and I think it's a factor in why so many startups fail, to be honest, because I advocate for people actually, I use the word recruiting, it may not be the right word for it, but I I think co-founders should recruit each other, not necessarily think that it's a good fit just because we're having a beer together and we had this really, this real connection around the possibility of this particular startup, but we haven't properly evaluated skills, capabilities, you know, cultural differences, our and the why, you know, there's so much in it. So from your experience, is there a time when thinking like this makes sense or should we be thinking about this right from the beginning and it really shouldn't matter whether I've just started my business and I am looking for co-founders or whether I'm a 500-person organisation? Is there a right time or should it be all the time? Well, I think that you've got to start wherever you're at. So if it's a new business, then yes, Exploring some of these things would actually be useful. A business relationship is like a marriage. It's almost harder to extract yourself out of a business relationship than it is out of a marriage because there's there's more involved, there's more at stake. So ideally, if you did do the recruitment process on a business partner perhaps, then that would be a smart thing to do. But you're absolutely right. People come together because they've got a synergy of minds or they think that they can create something and that's what they do. 
So it doesn't matter whether it's start space, whether you've been in business for a few years, or you might have even been in business for 20, 30, 40 years. At the moment, I'm working with a business that's 30 years old, 40 years old, 60 years old. So those businesses are now second, third generation businesses. So they have a different set of needs to a startup. So the point is, it's never too late to start. And the important thing is that you bring everybody together and you take them on the journey. Yes, the leadership team need to be aligned. Normally, when we go through refresh of a business or a, I call it a realignment process, then we do need to start with the leaders and we get clear on what is the vision, what is the values, what's the purpose of this business, where do you want it to be, what does that picture look like? And then we flow it down through the team and into the day-to-day activities so that everything aligns back up into what's the overall overriding strategy. You've got to make sure that people are doing things that feed into you achieving the goals and therefore the overall business strategy and therefore the vision. If they're doing things that don't contribute to that, then why are they doing them in the first place? Now, some of it will be compliance. And in the healthcare industry, there's a lot of compliance. So some of that, you you just have to say, well, this does need to be done. But in other things, if it's a project, a one-off project, you, you might be saying, well, how does this contribute? And how do we create meaning and purpose for the people who are working on this project to show them how what they're doing today is actually impacting us in a positive way in terms of our vision for the future? So to me, it's all about this alignment. It doesn't matter where you're starting from. Make sure it's aligned to your strategy and your vision. It it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. I often say to people that you could really look at a business as being a small group of people that helping a large group of people achieve their goals and supporting them through that that process. So it's, it's all about the people. I remember with uh, one of your, you've got a number of books, but one of them in particular, you talk about, you know, would your team walk over hot coals for you? And I, that might be a good segue to talk about some interesting pursuits you've had in the firewalking realm. But what inspired you to, to write that book with that title? So I was actually challenged to, uh, to look at what is unique about me and my brand. And there are a lot of business coaches out there and they all say that they can all do the same thing. So it was quite challenging for me to come up with something that was uniquely different. And to be honest, the only thing that I could think of that was totally different from everybody else was the fact that I was a double world record firewalker. So from <laughs> like seriously, I was like, You definitely don't meet one of those every day. <laughs> Well, that's true, but also I was thinking, well, I'm not that different. So it was interesting. But what I've learned since then by looking at what it is, you know, looking at firewalking and thinking the experience of firewalking is actually a really high-performance team um, environment because everything does need to be right. If you don't get it right, then people get seriously hurt or they could die. And there are lots and lots of moving parts. You don't just decide, oh, we're going to do a firewalking world record today. There's months of planning involved. There's lots of different organisations involved. And then on the day, you've got to have the right wood at the right temperature and everything has to be right. If it's not right, people get hurt. And so once I started unpicking and unpacking this whole concept of firewalking, 
I got to see where the correlations were with high-performing teams. And so that's really why I started writing about would your team walk over hot coals for you? Because it's a saying, you know, would you walk over hot coals for me? So I wanted to be able to relate that back to what happens in the workplace and how you can take the lessons from that experience and apply it into your workplace and I think it is a really relevant question to be asking you know does your team really want to be there enough and the statistics are horrifying 23% of of people are engaged in most teams. I see that as well in fact you know within my team and they all know that I don't even like using the word job I prefer to define roles as space that people can feel and join us on our quest, you know, because we're, we're very mission-oriented around what we're trying to achieve. And I know it, it, it might sound quirky to some people because like, oh, look, a job's a job. And it's like, no, when you're motivated from within, you've got that drive within you and you want to apply your skills and your experience and your capability to something. It's, a, you know, it's easy to think about when with something tangible like building a piece of furniture or designing a piece of jewellery, you can see the skill and capability coalescing and somebody's really committed to the quality and the art of that particular thing. Well, I think software and business is the same thing. There's a lot of creativity and there's a lot of expression and it's not for everyone. So I say, well, we have some more space available for somebody to join and infuse their energy into what we're doing and be a part of us. To me, that really resonates. I wanted to also pick up on a topic that, again, you've also written on as well, And that is that a lot of health business owners and partnerships related. And, you know, a typical relationship is, uh, you know, husband, wife or dating a marriage or something like that, or it may even be family and stuff like that. What do you do in those situations about high performance and getting the right fit for roles? Because you talked about specifically about working with the spouse, but I think that could extend to, you know, relatives and other types of relationship scenarios. But tell me more about the inspiration for that. Again, kind of happened by accident. I just found myself working with a lot of couples in business. I think um, my experience is that, and especially in service-based businesses, people tend to work together as husband and wife or perhaps the parents started the business and now the next generation is coming in. So you have father-son, father-daughter, mother-son, mother-daughter type roles. And so, but I've also worked with businesses where practically everybody except one or two people were related to each other and not related in the same family. So they would hire one person and then that person's cousin or sister or auntie or wife or, you know, would come in on the recommendation of the person who was working there. So um, what happens is, yeah, there's a lot of dynamics at play in that environment. So whether it's a sole family-owned business or whether you've got husband-wife scenario. So (laughs) the dynamics can become incredibly interesting. And the the division between or the separation between when is work, work and when is home life, home life can often get really blurred too. My own experience, I I work with my husband and we're now divorced. So that tells you a lot about there is a lot of pressure that comes on relationships, especially in times of change which we're in right now, there's a massive amount of change and pressure going on in the world. And it is incredibly difficult to create the separation. 
So what I learned in my own marriage breakup was that integrity is really important and also honesty and respect, regardless of which hat you're wearing, whether it's at home or at work, and how to keep the boundaries at play between when you do talk work and when you talk personal. And you've got to have some really clear boundaries around that when you are working with a family member. Is it okay on Christmas Day to be talking work, for example? So, and every person is different. You've got to think about the business itself, the relationship that you have. I've met people who said we never, even though we're married and we work together all day, we never ever talk about business after work hours, which to me is absolutely commendable. But I think the reality is for most people, it doesn't happen that way. So you've got to think about, well, what does happen when you get home from work? How do you greet the spouse once you've, even though you've been with them all day? How do you celebrate work events versus personal events and create some rituals and some structure and some boundaries around when is your relationship time, relationship time, and when is your work time or your family time. Um, and you've just got to be disciplined in those boundaries. I think it also creates a slightly more professionalised approach at actually dealing with defining roles and responsibilities and being able to create space where you're not the spouse anymore for a moment, you're actually business partners or potentially employer-employee so that you can actually get through that without triggering Mm -hmm. the relationship emotions that could come up. In previous lives, I've been exposed to husband and wife teams who have to call themselves co-managing director or something like that, and the confusion that it had on the team because there was no clear leadership. And I remember actually raising it with them. (laughs) It was a a pretty interesting uh, discussion. I don't think they appreciated the gift in the experience uh, at that point in time. But I think that's just a little anecdote that, you know, when you are in business with a spouse or with a a relative, it's too easy to regress into somewhat of a familial way of approaching the decisions that need to be made in business or the processes that need to put in place. And I think that that could result in actually underperformance very easily because you just can't have the right conversations and get the right roles and responsibilities in place because there's almost like a divine rite of passage. Oh, I'm, you know... I'm part of the family, I'm married to you or, you know, and therefore it starts to break down the, I guess, the ability to drive a business forward. And it does come back to, you've got to have that strategy in place. You've got to have the plan. You've got to have those position descriptions and you've got to have a mechanism to be able to be measuring and monitoring what the performance is, no matter who the person is in the business. And there does need to be some way of reporting back And so one of the things that we do in our structure is we flip it on its head. Instead of the managers having to be chasing people for their performance, we say, well, the employees need to be reporting every week to the managers. And it's the employee's job to be the proactive one in that process. So it doesn't matter whether, let's say, dad, husband is the the top of the tree, and then you've got perhaps daughter or son or wife reporting up to the to the managing director there still has to be the exact same professional standards in place across everybody across the board and if you have that in place then there's less opportunity for someone to get away with poor performance because it's just one standard that fits everybody 
And I think that's harder to do unless you have um, a coach or a mentor in place that can actually provide that arbitration or mediation in the right way. I mean, it can be done, but I think it's easier when a third party gets involved and actually provides a strategy for it. But also you've got to hold out the mirror sometimes as the coach and go, well, this is what I'm hearing. Is this what you intended? I've seen this eye roll happen multiple times when you see your (laughs) spouse. Is that what you want them to see you doing? You know, so sometimes you just have to have that level of conversation. And people sometimes aren't aware. They're just not. And so that is part of the value of having a coach. Help you see the stuff that you're not necessarily seeing for yourself. Absolutely. One last question. And I think I might know the answer, but I want to hear you say it. What's the world going to look like over the next five to 10 years if you have things your way? Oh, wow. That's a great question. So uh, I think you probably figured out already that I'm all about people working together as one. When people feel connected, when they feel heard and understood, together we can solve all the problems. We just need to have a common language which allows us to connect with each other and a way that allows us to respect each other's differences and to see that even if we are different, that's actually a good thing because then we can contribute. So, in, you know, in my perfect world, people would all understand who they were, they'd be comfortable with who they were and they'd give permission to themselves and to others to be the best that they can be. And if we all do that, then not only will we inspire ourselves, we'll inspire others. Not only will we feel empowered, but we'll empower others to do the same. And our level of engagement, a level of connection with ourselves and what we love will be absolutely prevalent. And I think there, there really are only two states, in my opinion. One is love and one is fear. And if you're in fear, you can't possibly be operating from love. And if you're in love, you can't possibly be operating from fear. But we run our businesses all the time from fear because we don't know any different. So what if we could reconnect with who we really are and reconnect back to what we love and give ourselves permission to go do that? When we do that, we'd be on purpose. So what if everybody in the world was just doing what they love and being on purpose? I think we'd have a completely different world. That's wonderful, Galen. Definitely inspirational. I think you're living the brand right there. But thank you so much for taking the time today and sharing with us some of your methodologies in helping the people within all businesses to be able to find natural alignment with the roles that they're fit for, purposeful for, aligned with, and working towards this idea of peak performance and high performance in an organisation. So I really appreciate your time, Gailene. Thanks for coming along. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced in collaboration with Health Tech X, where we are working toward a world of integrated digital health empowerment for all people. If you'd like more info on how to get involved, head over to the website, healthtechx.com.au. Or if you have any feedback about the show, you can reach out to me directly on LinkedIn, Instagram, or email by following the links in this episode's show notes. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to Reimagining Healthcare in your podcast app. And if you like what you heard, leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. I'm your host, Yanni Sopanos, and I'll speak to you in our next episode.